Now, it seems, given we're in the autumn of 2013, to um, do something of a stock take on where we have got to in the process of banking reform. And when I say where we have got to, there are different levels to that. There is what's the UK doing, that's uh, what I was most closely involved with through chairing the, um, the ICB, the Independent Commission on Banking. And we finished our work just over two years ago, so we're already two years on and more from, from that. But I want to think about, especially being here in St Anthony's, I want to think about how are we doing more broadly than just about the UK. So um, I'll have some remarks on European reform more generally, and indeed on the reform process internationally which is convened by the, the, the processes um, under the auspices of Basel. So I'll be talking quite a bit about um, internationally agreed baselines and how some countries or regions are or are not uh, going uh, beyond that. Now my plan, my sort of topics, um, a few remarks. I mean, we've all got views on how did it all go so wrong. I don't want to dwell on that, but... I think a few minutes just to get across or remind you of some facts which I think have particular uh, salience because they provide the, back, the factual backdrop, along with lots and lots of other facts, for recommendations of the kind uh, which the ICB um, made. And I think there are different aspects of how did it all go so wrong, depending what the it is in your mind. So I want to draw out some points about that. Then I'll do um, a, quick, a, a quick summary of where the reform process domestically and internationally has got to. That there are so many strands to it that I will not be comprehensive, but I'll, I'll indicate the, the particular focus as I go along. Then the main um, blocks, the third and fourth there, are the two headings where I think there is still a long way to go. One is the question of, of capital, but not just capital, other, f other types of loss absorbency by banks. And then um, the next unfinished business heading is the question of structural reform. And then I will um, make some interim and somewhat tentative conclusions on what to make of the last five years, which I hope are the first five years of um, banking reform. So how did it all go so wrong? Well, th the following points are basic, but they do lay the ground for um, uh, the, the reform initiatives uh, that I want to be talking about. Now, the, the financial system, as we all learned really to our cost five years ago, is of absolutely fundamental importance, not only to commercial life or economic life more generally, but indeed to... Um, uh, how society operates. I mean, just imagine the calamity that would have occurred if um, high street banks, as I'll call them, if they had gone down and if the government had either decided not to rescue them or had been incapable of rescuing them because of the financial commitment that involves. I mean, the, the disaster that that would um, herald is, is almost um, unthinkable. But five years ago, we we weren't far from the edge of that cliff. So if that had happened, we would have had um, appalling disruption of payment systems, uh, so transactions, salaries, pensions, benefits, and all that 
if that had seized up, uh, there would have been horrendous consequences. And that did not seize up. That all worked uh, comparatively uh, smoothly. We also have the financial system, and with banks at its heart, um, providing deposit-taking facilities. So as well as means of transacting, uh, you can store some of your savings there in the form of deposits. And I think until five years ago, maybe six years ago, bearing in mind Northern Rock in 2007, um, the idea that there was any risk to the money I had in my current account was, I mean, it wouldn't have crossed um, my mind except as a theoretical proposition. But that became quite a real possibility um, in, in that period. And we've seen in, in some places, for example, in Cyprus not long ago, um, more than a possibility. You've also got the financial system. Um, another of the key things it does for economy and society is extending credit, risk management, and so on. And all those things that the financial system does, banks are absolutely fundamental to, particularly in, in the European economies. It's true also in the US, but in the US you have um, more non-bank capacity doing some of those things. For example, money market mutual funds do some of these things. You've got um, deeper capital markets for corporate finance in the US than you have in the, you have in the UK. So banks are absolutely fundamental, um, and yet they proved to be very, very risky kinds of institution. I mean, what we were doing, in fact, was running market capitalism on the basis of some very fragile plumbing, uh, the way we had the banking system five years ago. Now, banks are always going to be subject to risk, and I'm not sympathetic to those who say, oh, you shouldn't let banks do anything that's risky, because that would um, merely relocate the problem somewhere else and in a very inefficient way. I mean, to say that banks should do should avoid all risk is to say they should never lend to small businesses, they should never lend uh, mortgages, they shouldn't do overdrafts. I mean, because all those things involve risk, credit risk, that you're not going to be repaid. And a lot of the good that banks do comes from, when things work satisfactorily, from them taking on, in a, in a measured and, and robust way, risks of that kind. Just as a lot of good, in my view, comes from what's called maturity transformation, that is, banks funding themselves in all sorts of ways, but including a big slab of, slab of deposits, which you can get back as, at will as an individual or small business, and using that to fund a lot of longer-term lending. That's a sort of um, almost economic ma magic if it all works fine. But it does mean that when things don't work fine, these very vital functions are, are at risk. And a, a very striking point, as I'll show you in a minute, is that banks operate with massively more debt in proportion to what they do than non-financial firms. So a typical engineering firm, I actually don't know, but my guess would be might have a debt-equity mix of financing 50-50, um, something like that. Or a ratio of equity would be half the whole. But with banks, um, that number was a lot less, as I'll show you in a moment. But first, this is why the issue is even bigger in the UK than it is on average. This is... Um, the size of bank balance sheet relative to GDP of the country in which the bank um, is headquartered. Uh, it's as things were about four years ago. Of course, bank balance sheets have come down a bit. So, unfortunately, has UK GDP over that period. But you'd be looking at a pretty similar ratio now. The, the UK, and this, these are sort of OECD-type countries, UK, that would be a factor of five. So if our banking system falls over, that is a, a particular problem for us. U.S., nearly over on the left-hand side, it's a ratio of about one to one. 
And that difference reflects, first of all, the sheer size of the US, which is half a continent. And smaller countries tend to have bigger ratios. But it's also the point I just mentioned, that the um, uh, US has more non-bank financial capacity than the UK does or a lot of other European countries. Um, Switzerland has another big ratio. They indeed have two institutions, Credit Suisse and UBS, which individually would be um, way bigger than Swiss GDP. We were comparing stocks and flows, but it's still, I think, a useful comparison. Uh, we indeed, RBS, uh, its balance sheet, for example, bigger than uh, a year's GDP of the entire economy. Continental European countries, France, Germany, Spain, ratio sort of in between, more like three to one. Now, leverage next. This is the ratio of um, the bank's balance sheets to the capital of the owners of the bank. So this is the equity capital. So it, as a first approximation, but only as a first approximation, you can think of the value as a bank as the value of its assets, all the loans it's made, um, minus the value of its liabilities. That's the shareholder value. And the difference between the two is equity capital, simplifying a bit. And that number... Um, that um, ratio, how much bigger the balance sheet is as a, as a multiple of equity, that used to be about 20 uh, for the, much of the post-war period. I'll, I'll go back much further in time in a later chart, but um, it bobbled around, uh, around 20, so 5% uh, would be equity capital. Now, if you knew nothing about it, which would actually be not a bad starting point, you might have the, in, you might have the intuition that only 5% of equity isn't the safest possible situation because if I'm a bank, 5% equity, i.e. 20 times leverage, I've only got to lose 5% on my asset side and I'm underwater. So 20 might strike you as quite a big number. But in the run-up to the crisis, and as you see, this really ramped up from the very late 90s for about a decade, that number doubled for a lot of very well-known institutions. So they were operating with 2.5% equity relative to their um, asset value. And, you know, in, in those terms, if your intuition says, well, no wonder there was a crisis, that's not a bad intuition to, uh, to have. And there, re there really are questions about why more alarm bells weren't ringing more loudly in more heads. Um, and I, I mean, not just in the financial industry, the regulatory community, but also um, in a spirit of mea culpa, I think, among um, academic economists. I think the short answer, why the bell wasn't ringing in my head, I, I had no idea this was the, the fact of the matter. And I don't say that as a defence. I feel even guiltier not having had any idea that this was the case that, than um, had I known but not worried about it. So you had this enormous ramp up in leverage. And what the international community is now trying to do as a backstop measure um, is to get that down to 33 times. And I was once giving one of these talks, and an audience member who had not been paying attention said, good Lord, 33 times, no wonder there was a crisis. And I had to remind them that this was where we were trying to get to in a few years' time from now. So far too little equity, I think, is obviously part of what went wrong and an answer to how did it all go so wrong. But there is more to it than that. Um, and here I want to lead into the question of um, interconnectedness not only between institutions, but also within institutions. For, to my mind, the sub, US subprime crisis was a big shock for the world economy, but not a gigantic shock. Yet, it and related things, it wasn't just the US. You had property markets crashing in um, Spain, Ireland, commercial property tanked in a lot of places, including in the Southern Hemisphere in Australia, for example. 
But the, the damage, I think, was shockingly great relative to the size of the, albeit large, shock. And I think that part of that is that we had the, almost like contagion run through the system and with the dominoes, um, uh, that metaphor is overdone, but the, sort of crashing into each other. And you had, in a space of very few weeks from sort of mid-September, you, you had Lehman going down, then the AIG issue, that imperiled it, literally Oxford High Street institutions in a really shocking way because of this interconnectedness. Most of the losses of the UK banks were overseas. That's not altogether surprising when you remember that five to one ratio, which reflects in many ways the success of London as, a, as an international financial centre. But you had a situation where losses connected with assets or derivatives based on those assets, nothing to do with the UK or even Europe, were imperiling these institutions. And there were no fire breaks either really between or within um, these institutions. So if RBS, um, which is now you know, 80 plus percent owned by the taxpayer, or other institutions were, um, uh, uh, you know, they, they lost tons of money on these things, and that was imperiling some very basic services with no fire breaks or whatever metaphor you want to apply uh, within them. And that left governments in the position where basically you either had to rescue the entirety of, of a bank like RBS or give sort of generic support to the, uh, to the sector. And there was no scope to say, well, look, your trading operations, those can go to the wolves, but we want to rescue the retail banking. No, the governments were not in a position to, to do selective measures. The whole thing was all or nothing. So there was no, no structural ability to do that. Moreover, the, um, a puzzle uh, momentarily when it, when it happened was, Although the equity holders, the shareholders lost loads of money, and maybe you're, you're among them directly or indirectly, the um, very little loss was borne by providers of debt finance to these banks, bondholders, even unsecured bondholders. And the reason for that is the place where bondholders lose money is called bankruptcy, and governments could not let these institutions, or felt, and I think correctly, felt they could not let these institutions go bankrupt in the circumstances of the time. And because that state was staved off, the bondholders often came out with 100 pence in the pound, cents in the dollar, whatever, which is um, not how a market system should operate. Consequences of all this, of course, a horrible macroeconomic situation, even worse in the, in the um, Eurozone, but um, horrendous fiscal issues arising in lots of places, including in the UK. So just a reminder on that, this is... It, these are quarterly billion, billions, in case you're wondering about the units. Don't worry about that. We had um, extraordinarily steady growth from the early 90s until 2008 in the UK economy, chugging along 2.5% um, a year GDP growth, maybe a touch um, less than that, but you know, unbroken. We didn't have a quarter of negative growth, and given the ine inevitable... There's always a bit of noise in the statistics. That's really remarkable. And that went on for, you know, 15 years and more, 60-plus quarters of positive growth. The hit to GDP was about 7% when the crisis happened, so peak to trough is 7%. And even now, we're only about halfway back. So the, um, you know, if, if the trend line had continued, and I'm not saying it would have done, but if it had, we'd have had five years of at least 2% growth, so we'd probably be um, you know, at least 10% above previous peak, and as it is, we're 3% below. 
So relative to that counterfactual, we're um, uh, you know, in, in the 12 13%, arguably even more below. And then the number of schools and hospitals and whatever that that adds up to is absolutely enormous. Now, even if one shades that number, even if you halve it, that is an enormous GDP loss. And, um, I, you know, much of it is down to this crisis. It's not just a thing that would have happened uh, uh, in any event. So it's horrific for the public finances. We're running a GDP deficit here of more than 10 percentage points of GDP. Even now, we're only in the sevens. You know, everyone talks about austerity. I mean, still running a 7% uh, of GDP deficit, it's, it, you know, there are more austere things than that. Um, so that's where we are in the UK. And in the Eurozone, um, you had it really in the spring of, and there are others in the room know much more about this than me, spring of 2010, so 18 months after the uh, crisis, you had the, the market realisation of what that meant for uh, the creditworthiness of uh, some Eurozone members. This is not a chart with Greece, Ireland, Portugal, still less Cyprus on it. This is Spain and Italy. And you saw there, and with, with further twists in 11-12, where the wedge between their debt and uh, German debt were, was about five percentage points. So, and that's against, with even all the expectation of the Eurozone coming to the rescue of these countries. So that's a measure of how... Um, scary things got on that front and part of it was this doom loop as it's called between the banks and the sovereigns where the sovereigns like in Spain felt they had to rescue the banks <coughs> but then th that can drag the sovereign down and the debate on European Banking Union is about how to uh, break through that doom loop. That wedge given ECB measures and gentle recovery that wedge is, is sort of two-ish rather than five as it was before. So th those are some features of how it went wrong and I, I hope in saying all those things, I've laid the ground a little bit for uh, themes of the reform initiative, which has many, many strands. So one of the, the first things that the UK government, when it was elected in spring 2010, did was to reshape uh, the financial regulatory architecture with the, the FSA functions being split into, um, into two, prudential regulation on the one hand, going back to the central bank, and the financial conduct authority on the other hand. Then you had the addition of the third leg, which is macroprudential regulation, which we'd not explicitly had before, and similar things happening in other countries. There are lots of questions about shadow banking, about market infrastructure, trading derivatives, trying to shift over the counter onto um, more centralized exchanges. But again, you, you've got to do that carefully, otherwise you're creating a new pocket of risk. There are, there's a, a lot one could say, I'm not going to, about accounting standards, about ratings, ratings agencies, um, and all the rest. But I want to focus on the, the, the banking bit. And within that, I'm going to focus on the two bold, emboldened bits. Um, a lot of lessons about how the supervision of banks, not going to talk about that. Loss absorbency, structural reform, I'll come to. I won't, I won't say much about liquidity regulation. There are very close links to loss absorbency. We can pick all that up in questions if you like. And I'll say a bit about recovery and resolution. I'll explain what that means to those not familiar and how that links, in my view, to questions of structural reform. Competition. Competition between banks. That was a casualty of the crisis as well. And one of the um, elements of the work of the ICB was all about those competition issues. I'm... Um, I'm to be done by when? Ten, uh, well, by six at the very latest, yeah? Yes, okay. but I mean, we'd okay. like to hear it. So no, no, but I like, I like, I like, so, I like uh, it. So, um, 
Again, let's keep competition for um, uh, questions if, you're, if you want to ask on that. There are, there are a number of, ver I think, very important questions about um, corporate governance, um, remuneration practices, culture in the sector, and so on. And the following our commission, as I'll say more about this later, there's been this, uh, the British Parliamentary Commission on Banking Standards, chaired by, by Andrew Tyree. And that had two jobs. One was to do pre-legislative scrutiny of the government's um, implementation, more or less, of our recommendations. The other bit, in the wake of LIBOR and a lot of other scandals, was about th those issues about, um, that I've just mentioned. And also, like, sanctions on individuals and otherwise for misconduct. We, we were very conscious in my commission of the culture issues and the pay issues, but we thought, um, given our remit the fundamental things that it made sense for us to focus on were those two uh, in bold, which I'll now come on to. So loss-absorbing capacity. I don't want to be too techy, but I need to be a, a little bit more th than I have been. So the Basel process. Um, the Basel Accords on uh, banking regulation go back um, uh, some time. We had Basel I, Basel II, now we've got Basel III, uh, not fully implemented, but um, agreed. And as part of this is uh, the internationally agreed aim by the end of 2018, so we've still five years to run, so that'll be 10 years from the crisis, um, to get bank capital up. How far up? Well, the basic requirement is that equity capital has to be at least 7% of risk-weighted assets. Now, that shifts the, the question to what is a risk-weighted asset? Well, <clears throat> the way that this thing works is, and th this is common sense up to a point, but th there are a number of um, question marks then descend on us. It, th some things that bank, banks do are more risky than other things. So if something is deemed to be very low risk, then it is given a low risk weight. So if, instead of lending, you know, if it's a, 100 million of low-risk stuff, then that might be accorded a weight of, let's say, um, a quarter. So then I, don't, I would need the same amount of capital as I would for backing 25 billion of risky stuff that had a risk weight of one. So it, if you didn't make this sensitive to risk weights, you'd be giving the banks incentive to do risky stuff at the expense of non-risky stuff. So risk weights are an attempt to offset that. The, the problem is, and you may be wondering, why were banks in the UK and elsewhere able to go from 20 times leave it up to 40, even 50 times? The reason is that the risk weights, inverted commas all over the place, were going down and down and down. So the deemed risk of these activities were, um, were going down and down in that decade that preceded the crisis. When in fact, as we now know, the true risk was going up and up and up. So for example, some of these Securitized mortgages, subprime, were sliced and tranched into the risky, the medium mezzanine, the low risk, and so on. And then you'd have a ratings agency and say whatever, well, that slice is so far from actually having to bear loss, we'll call that AAA as you know, very low risk. Um, what's the chance that house prices will go down appreciably across the entire United States? No chance. Um, and so on. So a lot of that gearing up of leverage was the tolerance of low risk weights. 
And the banks themselves were increasingly allowed to, to do models, economists cheer, right, models to assess the riskiness of what they're, they're doing. And a lot of those models said, actually very low risk, you don't need much capital behind that. Now, a number of people have made the point that, of course, the banks can game the system. They can pick a model that says that asset uh, portfolio is low risk. And I think that is a major policy problem. But I'm as worried about the bank that genuinely believes that it's low risk. It seems to me that's a, as great a risk as the bank that knows it's riskier than they're making out. Um, and I think that there, you've got both those problems. So in the face of all this, you, the Basel Agreement, international baseline is equity at least 7% of risk-weighted assets. And then there's a supplementary thing for the globally systemically important banks, known in the trade as GSIBs, sometimes GSIFIs, systemically important financial institutions. And they have to go higher, up to, for the very biggest, 9.5%. And that was in, I think, summer of 2011, that bit was agreed, very near the end of our work. But in addition to that, there's an internationally agreed backstop on leverage. And the leverage number I showed, sh numbers I showed you before did not have risk weights applied. So with no risk weights, there's a backstop of 33 times. And the average risk weight, um, you see the 7%, that would translate to 14. So the average risk weight, if you had that leverage backstop binding, would be kind of, I can't remember what the number is, something like... Um, an average risk weight of 0.35. There's a super nerdy techie point, which is that the leverage backstop applies to a slightly wider definition of capital than equity capital. So it translates in equity terms to a number that's in the higher 30s rather than 33. And I think by any, you know, I believe that is a very unambitious number. Um, but in the work of the UK Commission, that was the international backdrop. And if you're you know how Stalin was trying to do um, socialism in one country? So I, we were trying to do s capitalism in one country. If you're against that backdrop, um, you can't sensibly go massively above the international uh, baseline without real risk of activity migrating from the UK to riskier places, which would have been counterproductive. There was even a risk in the EU processes, uh, um, which lots of you know much about, that in the name of the single market, uh, the EU would not let any country go above the uh, baseline. That would have, in my mind, been absolute lunatic. It would be the equivalent of a thing on CO2 emissions that says no country is allowed to restrict emissions more than a certain amount. I mean, it just would be lunatic. And clearly, it seems to me safer banks in member state X is a good thing for member states, WYZ and so on, not a bad thing. But, and I give the Chancellor credit for this, he... Um, fought very hard and successfully in um, in the European Council for a for scope for the UK to go beyond the international baseline and have a higher one. And that's what we recommended. The Swiss had, had a commission that went, went similarly. So on equity, there's more to loss absorbency than that. What we recommended for the, for the UK retail banks, the big UK retail banks, was a 10% minimum. We had great difficulty keeping that low because we thought the whole thing was too low, but we, we nevertheless thought that was the right thing to do, taking the international backdrop as given. And some of my academic friends think we wimped out. I think we did not. I think we were looking at a very constrained problem, which is what should the UK do relative to others? 
and I'm completely with, um, at least directionally, with my academic friends who would think the whole baseline should be much higher on equity. There are two other reasons for pausing on that. One is the macroeconomic situation is fragile, and if you, if you try and go too, fast, too far too fast, you can have uh, counterproductive effects. The other is this issue I just touched on before about shadow banking. The banks become very, very regulated, and non-banks doing substitute activities don't. You can, again, just relocate the problem. So there's got to be an, initi- an initiative on shadow banking too, but because that is such an international thing, with exceptions like US um, money market funds. Um, There wasn't much we in the UK unilaterally could do about the shadow banking area, but that's very important. And we thought the leverage backstop is kind of no-brainer that you should tighten that um, in step with a higher equity requirement. The Americans, um, in July we had their authorities come out with capital rules, which are, I think if anything, the tight tight end of the Basel process. So they were talking about, for the depository institutions, um, 6% equity. And now that translates to 16 and a bit, 17 times leverage. But accounting conventions are different in the US and uh, the UK for many reasons, the biggest being the netting of derivatives on balance sheets. So you get a net position rather than a gross one. And that might knock a quarter off a... I mean, their banks are very vary, they vary a lot, but might knock a quarter off the balance sheet. So this US 6% is probably more like 4.5% in European terms. So it's actually quite similar to our um, 25 times backstop. Though in my view, unfortunately, the government here has not yet agreed with our 25 times backstop, even though I'm embarrassed 25 is such a big number. Uh, that, so that's some things internationally. Oh, I should just mention, there's a... Um, Senators Brown and Vitter, bipartisan bill before the Senate, um, proposing much higher equity requirements. I, um, I'm told that it's unlikely that that will gain traction, but I think it's good that that debate is still live. Now, structure. Well, I think there's been extraordinarily little debate on this. Because for me, although I regard capital and other loss absorbency, and I'll come on to other loss absorbency shortly, as... Um, absolutely fundamental to addressing these problems. I do think there are structural issues as well. And the the US is well known for two things. Having got rid of the Glass-Steagall prohibition in the late 90s, that's the prohibition on having retail deposit banking on the one hand and investment banking um, under the same ownership roof. That was um, uh, the 1930s FDR uh, legislation following their banking crisis in, in, the, in uh, the, the early 30s. That was a provision of that. It had got eroded over time because the language of the statute was things like primarily engaged in, blah, blah, and there was a lot of wiggle room around that. So it had already, it hadn't become a dead letter by the time of its repeal in the late 90s, but it had been substantially watered down in practice and was then repealed. But in the US, even though that prohibition has gone, there was no repeal of the requirement that retail banking, deposit banking, be in a separate affiliate Mm. from investment banking within the same group. And this is a fact of first order importance, and it's just not widely known uh, in Europe. Because the other well-known thing about the structural reform in the US is the Volcker rule. Tremendously likable, admirable figure, Paul Volcker, he proposed that proprietary trading, sort of speculative trading, should be banned from these big banks. And a lot of people in Europe thinks that, think that's the approach to structural regulation in the US. But it's not. What they're doing in the US is adding that to this separate affiliates provision. And we in Europe have had no separate affiliates provision. 
So the ring fencing recommendation that we did in the UK, which is to say you've got to have your retail operations in a separate entity, which can be within a, a wider group, so we didn't go for Glass-Steagall prohibition, that is very much in the same family as the US separate affiliate provisions, which have been on the statute book in the US since the 1930s. It's just that while the Glass-Steagall prohibition was in place there, that prohibition was the front line. Um, and uh, uh, so that, that's where the... And, and there are other developments in the US as well to try and strengthen that uh, regulation of separate affiliates. And there's a thing called the swaps push-out. So the US has done Volcker and strengthening of the affiliate separation. We recommended, and the government has accepted, ring fencing, as we call it. In Europe so far, sorry, in the rest of Europe so far, just edit that on the podcast, um, the... I think there's very disappointingly little action. France and Germany have gone for ultralight version of the Volcker rule, not separating the speculative trading from the groups, but requiring that be in a separate bit of those entities. But numbers I've seen suggest it only touches 1, 2, 3% of the balance sheet of the, of the banks affected, so it doesn't go very far at all. And then last year, the EU had um, this report chaired by the Governor of the Bank of Finland, Erki Liknen, which recommended, and I'll say more later, something really similar to our ring fencing recommendation but that the Commission hasn't come forward yet with its position on that. And internationally, we haven't really had any debate at all of the serious kind about structure. And there's Christine Lagarde a year ago saying we need one, and I com completely agree. And maybe five years on is high time. So a bit more on those two elements. First loss absorbency and then structure. Um, I've already made the, the, the point here that Although the equity holders lost money, bondholders, even unsecured uh, bondholders, didn't. Because they lose money in bankruptcy, governments weren't going to let that happen. It was also because their claims typically ranked pari passu, that is to say uh, equal rate of loss in insolvency, as other kinds of uh, funding, such as retail deposits of, of you and me and government-insured deposits. So even if they had borne loss, it would have been at the same rate as depositors. Though, of course, if you've got insurance from your government, it's the government, not you, that takes that loss. So instead of what, what sort of should have happened, which is equity holders are wiped out, then the unsecured bondholders, then on and on and on, you had taxpayers come and take loss and take on contingent liabilities immediately after the equity holders. And that has left us with a massive implicit subsidy, these um, the taxpayer on the hook for these entities. And that is a gross distortion of their funding because so long as that situation is perceived to persist, then um, the bondholders uh, can take a free ride on, on the uh, public subsidy. And that means they have no, no incentive to discipline what the banks are up to. So it's a hopeless incentive system. So it's very important for loss absorbency, in my view, not only to get a lot more equity, but also to try and make these other kinds of funding bear loss in a future crisis. Can you do that for sure? No. Can you greatly increase the odds? I think you can. Moreover, this public subsidy isn't just the things that the public might be willing to backstop, like high street banking, but if you've got no structures within banks, that subsidy leaks to everything, the trading book, the derivatives book, um, and so on and so forth. So the lack of structure makes this um, implicit subsidy problem far greater and 
can double or triple the scope of that subsidy. Now, the banks, not only in the UK, come back and say, but look, if you require us to have more equity, that's very costly. Equity is an extremely costly form of funding for us. We have to pass that cost on to borrowers, so you will be pushing up the cost of borrowing, and that will be bad for the economy. So there's a great debate on whether equity is um, costly or not. Is it costly for the banks? I think the only answer one can have for that is yes, it is a relatively costly form of funding. And part of the reason is precisely the implicit subsidy I've been talking about. Equity funding is not subsidised. Other kinds of funding are. Therefore, equity is relatively more costly. But that by itself is not a social cost of requiring more equity. Indeed, it's a benefit to society if you get um, funding sources more risk uh, reflective. There are other reasons why um, banks are reluctant to issue equity. Uh, One is that, bizarrely, the tax system encourages debt finance rather than equity finance because um, uh, there's a deductibility of interest uh, payments in most tax systems. It's kind of complicated because when you work it through the personal tax system, the the wedge isn't as big as it looks at first sight, but it's still an issue. Then there's a thing called the the debt overhang, and the subsidy I've just mentioned is an element of that, which is if a troubled bank raises more equity, that is getting... um, bondholders, depositors, and in particular the government, less exposed to the risks of the bank because it's putting a bigger capital buffer between uh, those uh, individuals and organisations and, and loss. So but the, the banks would be doing a favour to those creditor groups and government if they issue more equity, and it would be a favour for which they would not get compensated, so they, they wouldn't be... Um, um, <coughs> That they're reluctant to do it. So I think you've just got to force banks to issue more equity in this situation. There is a very big wedge between their private interest and the public interest, particularly just after you've had a crisis, because when they've got wafer-thin equity, this divergence between public and social interest is particularly um, good. Is there a cost to the economy of more um, equity? Well, there's a famous theorem due to Modigliani and Miller, MM, which says... If you assume blah, 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 then the the cost of funding for an institution is the same no matter what the mix of debt and equity is. And part of that logic is if you issue more equity uh, as a firm or a bank, then there'll be more buffer uh, of risk, so you'll be able to raise further funding more cheaply, and it'll all wash out. And then the, the banks and others will say, but look, the real world is nothing like the assumptions of the Medigliani-Miller theorem. And that is true. But when you list the main reasons why the world is different from the Medigliani-Miller theorem, you get even more reasons from a public policy point of view why you should require the banks to have more equity. So um, in, in, actually in our interim report, we had, because this issue, this issue was flying around quite quickly, we, we actually had a, a, a treatment of those um, issues. The way to cut to the chase was a very nice way Martin Wolf had uh, in, in discussions with the, um, some of the banks where he said, you, what, you say you've got to give your equity holders a real, real terms return of 15% on equity. And they say, yes, and it's come down from 20, it used to be 20. And he would say, but wait a minute, what's the risk-free rate at the moment? Uh, and the, the risk-free rate of return is approximately zero. So he said, you, you need 15 the risk-free rate is 20. You must be running a hell of a risky bank. Otherwise, no way in the world would you need to give the holders of your bank equity 
a 15% uh, real return. So you're condemned out of your own mouth. That was his line. And that it, it's um, put in the form of rhetoric, but it's correct as a point. Um, now, however, I'm not in the crowd that says you should get equity higher and higher and higher. The, some take the view, I mean, one of our um, trenchant critics is a very good economist, Larry Kotlikoff. He would essentially abolish banking and have it all done by mutual funds. And a mutual fund um, where you wouldn't have a bank deposit, you'd have a share in a mutual fund that would go up and down with the market and so on. So that ab abolishes problems in banking by abolishing banking, um, which I suppose does, in a sense does the trick. But I think, you'd, I think a lot would go out of the window if you did that, a lot of socially and economically very desirable things. So I'm not more and more and more and more equity, but I think we're in a place where undoubtedly more is better or at least in terms of where we should try to get to. I wouldn't want to do it tomorrow, but we should have, a, in my view, a much more ambitious um, trajectory than, than in the Basel uh, processes. Why then did we stay as low as our 10%? Well, I've already indicated it's partly because we were recommending for the UK, taking the world as given, so that's the geographic arbitrage risk. There's also this risk of stuff going to non-banks and the macroeconomic problem of how do you get from here to there. I mean, it, you know, if you think that the 7% equity number should actually be um, 30%, you can't sensibly say, and they've got to do it within the next five years. And we didn't think you could credibly say they've got to get to 30% and they've got to do it by 2042. You know, that's just not a, you can't straight-facedly uh, get away with that. Now, had we not faced those constraints, and I've been asked quite a bit, what, what would my number have been? I would have gone, um, I I haven't calibrated it precisely, but my, my feeling is double what we did. So 20% uh, in relation to risk-weighted assets and 12 times as a leverage cap. But we are not in a blue skies world. And even though I'm an academic, I'm, I think it's irresponsible to say, well, I'm going to pretend we are and go out there and say the number should be twice as high when I know perfectly well we're not. There are these constraints. Now, the second thing is that we tried hard to get loss absorbency greatly increased not only by higher equity, but also by other means. Before I get onto that, I think this is fascinating. I showed you earlier a chart showing that 20 times, or in these terms, 5% equity ratios in the period from sort of 1960 onwards. If you go back a century earlier, you see that the banks in the UK and the US, they were often operating on four or five times leverage. And um, I'm not an economic historian, but I believe the United States economy did quite well in the, uh, um, in the late 19th century and so on. Now, it's true they had lots of banking crises still, but uh, it, you, can, you can perfectly well have very good growth with much, much less leverage in the system. And anyone says the only way to run capitalism is on 30, 40 times leverage, I think that's just utter nonsense. And... Um, uh, a recipe for the demise of the system if you have enough uh, the crisis. You can only have so many without uh, all sorts of sovereigns going down. Now, what about um, the, other, the other bits of loss absorbency? This is picking up the point at the bottom, and I don't have slides on it. We, had this, we said you've got to articulate the hierarchy of loss absorbency rather than everything being equal. So we said there should be a sufficient slab, and we put numbers on it, of what we call primary loss-absorbing capacity. So each big bank would need, in addition to equity, at least um, a further 7 to 10% risk-weighted assets of 
something that had to be um, unsecured more than a year to run and subject at the point of failure to a, a regulatory bail-in power. What that means, bail-in, the opposite of bail-out, is that the regulator, without bankruptcy happening, without the legal state of insolvency being entered into, could impose losses on the holders of such stuff. And by that means, we went, got on for doubling what we recommended. So when I said my blue skies, would we, we coupled this with proposals to have a big slab of such debt. And a big thing missing from the international debate until about now is what should be the internationally agreed baseline on how much of that, in our terms, primary loss-absorbing capacity. In some of the Basel jargon, that's called gone concern loss-absorbing capacity, or GLAC. We call it PLAC, but it's the same thing. Uh, how much should there be? And the other thing we did was to say that ordinary deposits, the ones with government-backed, government those should be senior, so the furthest from having to take loss, uh, to get away from this problem of everything having to be eaten into at the same rate. Right, structure. Um, Loss-absorbing capacity, which I've been talking about, and structural reform, those are the two main dimensions, apart from competition, that the ICB looked at. Uh, we thought, as I've indicated, if you go um, super high on structure, you run into all, uh, sorry, in capital, you run into all sorts of problems. If you try and do it all by structural reform, and some voices would say, look, go for Glass-Steagall total separation, I think that by itself would be um, very much inadequate by itself as a remedy. We, we sort of went in the crosshairs of that diagram and, um, with non-extreme measures on both fronts. I think our package is as radical as anybody's anywhere. They get a lot of attacks for not having gone far enough. But in, we, weren't, we weren't super radical in either dimension, and very deliberately so, did that for considered reasons. And we went for this thing called ring fencing, which is the separate subsidiary idea for retail banking. That would have to have its own equity cushion and enhanced from 7 to 10% for big banks, its own loss-absorbing debt on top. It would have to meet its own liquidity requirements. It would have independent uh, governance structures from the rest of the group. And it would be able to deal with the rest of the group only on a third-party basis. So lots of restrictions to stop um, the fence being undermined. Why do this? Three reasons. One is insulation. It gives you something of a firebreak between, say, an outside the UK or outside Europe shock uh, and retail banking services. You can imagine a crisis, which is somewhere else in the world. It might make UK banks lose a ton of money on their trading books. It might even bankrupt uh, their non-retail operations. But if you've got disinsulated, uh, it gives you some safety. In a different context, um, uh, the Spanish banks, that have, they operate in a geographically um, subsidiarised structure. Santander UK, which is a very big player in UK retail, I think even when the Spanish woes were at their height, mm. there was no real question over Santander UK because it had um, that degree of insulation. Um, I, I think Santander in Spain was, it wasn't like the Cajas, but I think that's just a reassuring insulation benefit. Will that give you insulation against all future crises? No but I think a big chunk of them it would, so it shifts the odds. Second thing, I said a few times that the government had no option 
to say, well, we'll have this approach, we'll keep the retail stuff going, but we'll let the trading book or derivatives go down. It couldn't do that because it was all intermingled in one big lump. If you've got separate bits, you can have separate policies for separate bits. And a big theme of the International Reform Initiative is to uh, enhance these of what's called resolution. This is the orderly unwinding of, um, uh, of banks when these crises happen. Horrendously complicated geographically because they're operating in multi-jurisdictions with different bankruptcy laws, blah, blah, blah. Very, very different functionally as well. But I, I'm very strongly of the view that for complex institutions, resolution is credible only if you have some pre-structure in the institutions. The idea you can unscramble this totally intermingled thing without that, I think is ridiculous. So the irony is we've got, you know, more or less everyone in principle agrees we need much better resolution, but we've had very little debate other than in the UK and Volcker in the US, and now with Likkanen in Europe, on structural reform. But without that, I don't see how this um, resolution is credible in the case of the complex institutions. Now, in the US, the FDIC has wound up lots of banks over the years, um, but A, they have been much simpler institutions than some of the global banks, and B, they have had this separate affiliate uh, structure in them. So they have been able to say, well, this bit will have a bridge bank to keep that going, this bit we won't, and so on. Third benefit, and this mattered a lot for us given, um, and I think if in questions we want to talk about some of the domestic politics around reform, I think this is important. By having ring fencing you, and, and separation of structure, you could have higher capital requirements in retail than in non-retail. Why, why would you want that? Some people think it was ridiculous because investment banking is the risky bit. Well, it's not entirely true because there's a lot of risks in retail banking too, and a number of countries around Europe illustrate that. But um, the reason was that the, in international banks, slightly different regulatory requirements can trigger a big move internationally of activities, and that is... Um, undesirable. So ring fencing gave us a way to have safer UK banking without screwing up the international position of UK banks. And I think all in all it gives a, a sound framework for lending to the real economy. Okay, so you're going to have ring fencing. How do you design it? You've got to have a strong fence, otherwise no point. Where do you put the fence, um, speaking metaphorically? Rather than draw a line and say everything on the left-hand side has to be in the retail bit and everything on the right-hand side has to be in the other bit, our logic took us to a place where um, we said some things should be permissible by banks only in ring-fenced entities, that's the core bit. Some activities should not be allowed in there, but there's a big middle sway, if you can think of it as commercial banking more generally, where on the logic could be either side, so why not let the banks... Uh, and their customers choose that. And indeed, it might be quite desirable if different banks adopted different solutions for reasons of ecosystem diversity. Now, the logic of the legislation is actually very much in line with that. The detail isn't entirely. There are some outside EEA things which the government is going to allow in the fence, tr trade finance and so on. And I think on that the government's right, actually. We, didn't, we only had 15 months, didn't claim to get every detail right. But on, on that, I think it's a perfectly reasonable view that the government has taken. Frequently asked question number one, why didn't we go for Glass-Steagall in a full breakup? Short answer is, I think it would have been much more costly and for very unclear benefit. Um, I go back to my ecosystem diversity point. If retail banks, if you create a, an ecology of completely standalone domestic retail banks 
And if the next crisis or the one after is domestic, say it's a big crash in commercial property prices in the UK, you are in a worse position having done a full split than having done ring fencing. Because with ring fencing, there's a possibility that the rest of the banking groups, if the rest of the world's doing okay, have resources to fight the fire in the UK. And if you go for a full split, you have lost that benefit. Now, the sum on the Parliamentary Commission. Parliamentary Commission, this is a, an amazing body, chaired by Andrew Tyree. I think it's six MPs, six members of the House of Lords. Nigel Lawson, I think your former student, Peter, was he? No? No, well, anyway, you don't take credit for everything. Anyway, he's... Um, um, he, uh, he, is, he would, I think, go for a more radical um, measure, uh, but they've not actually recommended that. They propose what's called electrifying the fence. <laughs> They're worried that it will be eroded over time, which is a perfectly reasonable thing to worry about. And so into the legislation is being put a reserve power for a group restructuring order where, subject to various constraints, regulators and government could say to a bank that's been... Uh, the, the f who's been eroding its fence, tunnelling under, climbing over, whatever you do. Um, and it can say, right, you are split totally into two. So it's a reserve power, and it's meant to deter going near the fence. And I, have, I once, uh, in a rural cricket match, I was on the boundary and the ball whizzed past, and I did not realise that the wire I... Uh, so I, this, I, this is very credible in my, in my mind. Um, so we didn't go for a full split. I, I characterise it as structured universal banking, which is what they've got in the US, for example. Second frequently asked question, why not go for the Volcker rule? Well, that has two parts. What, why not do that instead of what we did? Well, it wouldn't have gone anywhere near far enough, and the Volcker, Volcker rule is proving enormously difficult to implement. And don't forget, the UK has the separate affiliate business anyway. US, yes. the, sorry, the US does. Thanks, Max. Why not add it to ring fencing? Good question. Parliamentary Commission looked at it, said... Um, important question, keep an eye on it, but on balance, not worth doing it, partly because the banks in the UK now say they're not doing it, any, any volcarised activity anyway. So we now have legislation. It's gone um, through the Commons, um, partway through the Lords. I think next up is the Lords Committee stage. So it's most of the way through. There is a broad cross-party consensus, which I think is really good. Uh, so it ha this hasn't been party political, or not very much. And what the bill does is those things. It provides for ring fencing, deposit of preference, and a, a bunch of recent amendments the government laid down a week or so ago. It does other things like providing for the regime for the bail-in debt business. So it doesn't specify capital levels and the rest. That's for not for primary legislation, but for other things. But it is, you know, so far so good in the legislative process. To Europe, this Likonin group was set up after we'd finished, and somewhat to our surprise. They were asked to look at very similar questions, the structural questions. They recommended separating trading from deposit banking, which in, in my view is ring fencing by another name. Erki tells me that ring fencing is a phrase that doesn't work in any other European language, and Finnish in particular doesn't work. So they call it separation, but that's a nominal, not real difference. It's not identical to us. They... And it's odd, I think. They would allow the, re the uh, retail entity to do securities underwriting. That seems to me, and, and the Glass-Steagall legislation from the 30s in the US, uh, that's a classic investment banking activity in my mind. So uh, that's different from us. But um, it, in many, many ways, it's very similar. Where's that proposal got? Well, the Commission consulted, Brussels Commission consulted, and I think is still mulling consultation responses. 
um, I don't want to dwell on this. This is a chart from the European Commission consultation. The thing I really like about it is option H explicitly recognises the point I've been banging on about, which is the UK and the US bank holding company structure are in the same box. And Lickenen, option E, I think e, e and H are actually very, very close to each other. So this, this is exactly correct portrayal. Eurozone banking union... It, some say, oh no, that's a separate issue. I don't think that is true at all. I think Eurozone Banking Union makes a lot of sense if, if it's between banks that are well capitalised and safely structured. could be disastrous otherwise. So I think you want to do banking reform anyway, but all the more so if you're going to do this. And to end, um, the UK, I think it's fair to say, is leading on structural reform, even though we're not going as radical as, as some, like uh, I think Lord Lawson would want to. UK was one of the leaders on loss absorbency, but the government, unfortunately, has not accepted our leverage backstop recommendation, at least not yet. So I wouldn't count the UK as in the vanguard on loss absorbency. I hope the UK will be on the loss-absorbing debt issue. Maybe it will be, and that would be good. EU, watch that space. US, the Dodd-Frank legislation, 2010, still being implemented, so still a lot to play for. Um, Basel process... I think it's unambitious what they agreed to on capital, but the bail-in debt space is still to be filled. So there's still, in my view, lots more to do. And as to whether the first five years of reform have been successful or not, if if this is all we're going to get, then the answer is no. If it's prelude uh, to be built on in the next five, then then maybe we will get to a much better place. Thank you. Thank you very much indeed.